It is the last Sunday of Advent. Advent is the four weeks leading up to Christmas. It is a season of waiting for Jesus, and it is almost over. Christmas is just a few days away. And with that, I imagine all of the rest of you are entirely ready for Christmas. Um, all the gifts are bought and wrapped, sitting under the tree. Christmas baking is in the nice little tins with tissue paper and a little bow tied on it. Uh, Christmas cards are sitting on the mantle. Stockings are hanging just ajar in front of the fireplace. Right? No? Not exactly, right? Well, our, our roaring fire at our apartment consists of the TELUS HD Yule Log channel. Um, and so far, our, our Christmas baking consists of a store-bought Trader Joe's gingerbread house. Um, so you are not alone, and that is okay. Please just put out of your mind this morning anything that is pressing on you, thinking about all the stuff that's yet to be done, and let's focus on these texts, because that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be preparing our hearts to receive Christ. That's what Advent's about, not a whole bunch of stockings and presents and bacon. All right, so that's what we're going to do for the next little bit. We're going to focus on these texts from, from Mark. No, Matthew. Wait, what text again? Luke. That's it. Um, and I think there's no better text to be looking at than this Luke passage right before Christmas because of all of the texts we've looked at in Advent, all of these texts from the first chapter of Luke, this is the one that gives us the fullest picture of what God is up to in the world. See, Luke's narrative in the first chapter of, of, of man, I am, my head is just a little bit foggy. Luke's narrative in the first chapter of Luke is packed. It's fast-paced. Uh, there's a lot going on. And it's been coming to us in pieces. See, Luke is a brilliant storyteller because he doesn't give it all away at the beginning. He's going to leave us in suspense, waiting for a complete picture of what God's doing in the world. See, Israel has been waiting for a very long time for God to act. They've been waiting hundreds of years for God to send someone who would put the world back together the way that it was supposed to be. They've been waiting for someone from the line of David, specifically, who would come and who would reign over them as their king. And for a long time now, Israel has been ruled by other kings, not by kings from the line of David. First it was the Babylonians, then it was the Greeks, and now it's the Romans. And they're, they're sick of it. They're sick of being ruled over by somebody who's not from the line of David, somebody who is not God's chosen king. They're desperate for someone to come and free them from the oppression of their enemies, they're waiting for the day that the Lord would act on their behalf and fulfill his promise spoken through the prophets. For instance, this prophet Isaiah, who speaks this, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, says the Lord. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. This is the promise that they're hoping for, the promise that they're waiting for. And not only that, but they're waiting for someone who's going to come and make their relationship with God right again. They're waiting for the day that these other words of the prophet Isaiah are going to be fulfilled. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. It's been a long time since these words were spoken. Hundreds of years Israel has been waiting for God to act. So when Luke begins writing, there's massive expectation of God to do something. Their lack of liberation is keenly felt. They're aware of it on every front. But as I said, Luke is a brilliant storyteller, and he doesn't just give it all away at the beginning. He's going to build this tension further. And nowhere more does he build this tension than in the first chapter of Luke. It's almost as though Luke wants 
his gospel to be like an archaeological dig. Luke knows exactly what's buried beneath the ground, but he's going to let us dig for it. So we're told, yeah, there's something over there buried in the ground. So we go over, we take our shovel, and we smash it into the ground, and we hit something. And shovelful after shovelful of dirt that we pull away, we realize that this thing buried is a lot bigger than what we had expected it to be. That's kind of what's going on in this first chapter of Luke. He's pulling away shovelfuls of dirt and realizing what is the magnitude of this story. If you can remember back to the first Sunday of Advent when we looked at the beginning of Luke's gospel, you'll remember that he begins his story not with Jesus. He begins his story with Zechariah and Elizabeth, a couple who was righteous before God, a couple with the right family lineage for something great to come from them. And then we hear that the angel Gabriel visited Zechariah in the temple and told him that his wife, though advanced in years and barren, would bear him a son. And Gabriel told Zechariah that he was to name him John and that he would have joy and gladness at his birth because his son would be great before the Lord. The angel told him that he would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and that he would go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is what John's going to do. And those who heard this would have been thinking, wow, what? There was a prophecy about this in the Old Testament. In the last book of the Old Testament, to be specific, the prophet Malachi wrote about this. He said these exact words, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So if John is coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, then does that mean that the day of the Lord is near? That's the question Luke wants us to be asking as we hear this. And then we hear about this other couple, Mary and Joseph. And Joseph is from the house of David, Luke writes. No, could it be? Could this be the king from the house of David that they've been waiting for? And then Luke tells us that the angel Gabriel goes and he visited Mary as well. And to her he said, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Really? You should be asking. Is this the king we've been waiting for? And so the narrative continues. Mary visits her relative Elizabeth. And at the moment Elizabeth sees the baby, the, the baby or she's Mary, the baby in her womb leaps for joy. And she says to Mary, why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Really? Elizabeth knows this too? She knows that there's something more about this child? Who is this child that's in Mary's womb? And that's precisely the question we should be asking. Who is this child? What child is this? To quote that song that we sung earlier. It's precisely the question Luke wants us to be asking about this child. What child is this? Who is this child? And then we get Mary's song that Bishop Trevor spoke on last week. And it's a song known traditionally as the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord. And it's the first of four songs that we're going to get 
in this first section of the Gospel of Luke. The second is the one we're reading this morning, Zechariah's song. Uh, the third is one called uh, the Gloria. It's the song sung by the angels at Jesus' birth. And then the last song is known as the Nunc Dimittis, which is an awesome Latin word meaning now depart, my soul now depart. It's the song of Simeon, who says that now that I've seen Israel's salvation, my soul can go off in peace, my soul can depart. And these four songs have two purposes in Luke's narrative. The first is that they tell us the meaning of what is happening here. They tell us the meaning of what is happening. These songs want to proclaim that what is happening privately in the lives of these families is actually something that has universal significance for the whole world and for all people. They tell us the meaning of what is happening. The second purpose they have in Luke's narrative is that they are celebratory pauses in the narrative. What is happening is so great that we have to slow down and we have to rejoice. What's happening is so great that the only right response is to sing about it. So these, these songs have much the same purpose as they do in a musical. Um, they are to tell us, step back, to tell us the meaning of something that's happening and to give us celebratory pauses. They hold together the meaning and celebration together. So while Mary's song begins with praise for what God has been doing for her personally, it ends with these huge universal statements. Let's look at Luke 1, 51 to 55. This is the end of Mary's song. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in the remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So although this begins small, this begins with Mary, it's going huge. Mary is saying that this, this birth that's coming, this child that's in my womb, has huge significance. It's not a private matter, clearly. But the question is, how exactly does this child fit in with this? We still don't know, and Luke wants us to keep asking that question of who is this child? And that's when we come to our text for today. So that was really just a really long introduction to our text. Um, because in order to grasp this text fully, we need to know the significance of all of these songs. We need to know Israel's backstory going into this. Now, our passage this morning breaks down into two sections. The first is a narrative section telling us what's happening, and the second is the song. I'm going to make a few brief comments about the narrative section, and I'm going to spend most of the time talking about the song, because I think that's where the real meat is. So the narrative. This is basically the fulfillment of what the angel Gabriel told Zechariah would come to pass. So if you can remember back a few weeks ago to Alistair's sermon on Gabriel's visit to Zechariah in the temple, Zechariah didn't exactly respond all that well to Gabriel. He essentially laughed at the angel. He said, how shall I know this? My wife is old, to put it bluntly, and barren. And Gabriel responds with the most chilling response. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. If ever there was a statement that puts you in your place, it is that. I stand in the presence of God. And then he says, Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, 
which will be fulfilled in their time. So there are five things that are supposed to come to pass that this angel says. The first is that Elizabeth will give birth. The second is that she will give birth to a son. Third is that there will be joy and gladness at his birth. The fourth is that his name will be John. And fifth, that Zechariah will be unable to speak until the day that this takes place. So these are the five things that the angel Gabriel says are going to take place. Well, let's go through them. Our passage today begins with, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. So the first two things, birth, son, check, done. And it continues, And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Joy and gladness, rejoicing, check, it's there, it's the third thing. And what about his name? Look at verse 59. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to the father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. All right, so he's named John. Check, fourth thing. And it's at this moment that Zechariah's tongue is loosed and he begins to speak. He begins singing, blessing God. And it's with this that all of those things that the angel said would come to pass have actually come to pass in the text. Now, before we get into the song itself that Zechariah sings when his tongue is loosed, look at the reaction of the neighbors in verses 65 and 66. And fear came on all the neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up on their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. What on the surface is a private affair, the conception, birth, and naming of a child, our neighbors certainly didn't try to interfere in those things with Ethan. This private affair suddenly has a widespread impact. Fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up on their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? Our reaction to this story ought to be the same as that of the neighbors. We, too, should be wondering, what then will this child be? Because clearly there's more going on here than just the birth of a baby. What then will this child be? And it's a question we ask all the time, I think. The other day I was riding home from our office downtown, and there was about a two-year-old boy hanging on his mom's back in in an ergo carrier. And looking at him, I was standing there on the bus, and I started to think, what is Ethan going to be like when he's two? What is he going to be like when he's five? What is he going to be like when he's 20 or my age? It's a question that we wonder about constantly, and Carrie and I talk about it. What is his personality going to be like? What's he going to be into? What's he going to want to do for work? And that's a question we ask about our very normal child. How much more should we be asking that question where the circumstances around the birth are these things, miraculous things? What then will this child be? And by way of answer to this question, we get Zechariah's song. But the funny thing about it, as an answer to the question of who John will be, is that John doesn't take center stage at all. Although Zechariah will tell us who John will be, he's really more concerned with the question we've been asking throughout this narrative as we've walked through it. Who will the other child be? Who will Jesus be? That's the more important question. So even though this is a song of John's father, Zechariah, he downplays John. And instead, he focuses on, elevates, and praises Jesus. 
So that's the lens through which I want to read the rest of this song. Who will Jesus be? What is God doing through Mary and Joseph's son? And this song breaks up into four distinct parts, and I want to look at them each in turn. The first section, verses 68 to 71, is a description of what God has done. It's a description of what God has done. Let's read 68 to 70 together. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. The first question I had when I was reading this text is, when is he talking about? Not what is he talking about, when is he talking about? Because this sounds like Old Testament language. It sounds like the language Israel has always used to talk about her own national salvation. Verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. This sounds like Exodus language. This sounds like the time that God came and rescued Israel from out of Egypt. The time he visited plagues upon the Egyptians and redeemed his people from slavery. Verse 69, and he raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This has echoes of the book of Samuel when David describes the Lord as his horn of salvation. Only here it says that the Lord has raised up a horn of salvation from the house of David. It's been reversed. And this, this term horn is simply a, a word used to denote strength and power, like a, a ram standing tall with its horns. And look at verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Verse 70 alludes to the great history of Old Testament prophets, who in the wake of the destruction of Jerusalem and being carried off into exile, never stopped proclaiming to his people that God will act to save her, that he has not abandoned her. So the question you should be asking is, when is this happening? Is this talking about something in the past, or is this talking about the present? And then verse 71, the tone shifts slightly as we move into the second section of the song. Look at verse 71. That we should be saved from our enemies and from, all, from the hand of all who hate us. Having now summed up God's actions in the past, Zechariah begins to emphasize Israel's hope for him to act in the future, in the present. Instead of allusions to what God has done in the past, he switches to praising God for what he will do. Verse 71, the hope, of what God would, the hope that God would act to deliver his people from their enemies. It brings to mind the language of not only the prophets, but also of the Psalms. Up on the screen is going to be Psalm 22. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. This sounds like the language of the psalm. And look at verses 72 and 73. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our, fathers Abraham, our father Abraham to grant us. The Lord is going to do this in order to show the mercy that he's always promised he would show. He's going to do this in order to remember the covenant that he swore to Abraham. This covenant. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
So while Zechariah is clearly using the language of the Old Testament, when you read it in the context of the rest of the gospel, the first chapter of Luke, you quickly realize that he's not talking about something in the past. He's talking about something in the present. The Lord has visited and redeemed his people now. He's raised up a horn of salvation now, that we should be saved from our enemies now, that he is showing his mercy now, that he is remembering his covenant with Abraham now. Zechariah is not simply rehearsing what God has done in the past. He's praising God for what he's doing in the present. And this is huge. What Zechariah is proclaiming is that Israel's hundreds of years of built-up and unmet hopes for God to act are finally being met. And they're being met not in Zechariah's son, John, but in this three-month-old baby in Mary's womb. Look at verses 76 and 77. And you, child, John, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. These two verses are the third section of the song. And they are the official answer to the question that all of Judea seem to be asking. What will this child John be? The answer is that John is merely a prophet. He's not the Christ. He's not the Messiah. He's not the Savior everybody's been waiting for. And even years later, people are going to keep messing that up. After John begins his public ministry, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, people still mistakenly wonder if he might be the Christ. But John insists that he's not. Look at Luke 3, 16. It's up on the screen. I baptize with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Both Zechariah and John know their place before God. And all they can do is point away from themselves and towards Jesus. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. John's role is simply to prepare the way for Jesus. And the way he's going to do that is through giving people a knowledge, maybe better translated, an experience of salvation in the forgiveness of their sins. And this is really significant because what Zechariah is saying is that to know salvation is to experience forgiveness of sins. It is to know that you do not stand condemned before God. To know that when God looks at you, he sees, when he sees you for who you really are and your life for what it really is, he doesn't turn his face away from you. He doesn't reject you. That's salvation. But how, we should be asking, how will we know this? Well, the answer comes in the climax of the song, the fourth section, verses 78 and 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. It's a metaphor. The birth of Jesus is often described as light coming into the darkness. We've heard it several times already today in songs, in the liturgy. But nowhere, I think, is the image as beautiful as it is in these verses. Jesus' coming is described as a sunrise that gives light to those who sit in darkness. At no other time of the year do we care as much about proper lighting as we do at Christmas. Candles. Candles store signs, 
lights to decorate our houses and trees and our fireplaces. It's a season to enjoy the beauty of a light that shines in darkness. But it's also a time that we quickly forget that we too are a people who dwell in darkness, a people who sit in darkness. In the Old Testament, darkness, blindness, it all describes a state of those who are oppressed physically, spiritually, like Israel in slavery in Egypt before the Exodus. Darkness refers to people who are locked up in ignorance, people who are on the edge of death, those who have been rejected and abandoned, those who are in need of release from addiction, those in need of forgiveness, and those who refuse to show mercy to the most vulnerable in our society. This is what darkness means in the Old Testament. We are surrounded by darkness on every side. We bump into it around every corner. And as much as we try to chase it away with lights and with fire, it's always there. But the promise of Zechariah's song, the promise of Christmas, is that one has been born who gives light to those who sit in darkness, who gives light to those who sit in the shadow of death. And as I've been studying this passage all week, the question I keep asking myself is, so what? What do we do with all this information? Great, maybe it met Israel's hope for a long-anticipated Messiah, but does it have any relevance now? And the answer to this has to be a resounding yes. Because we trust that our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And therefore, when he proclaims that one has come who gives light to those who sit in darkness, in the shadow of death, it was not just a word for them. It's a word for us. Notice that even the righteous Zechariah includes himself among those whose feet need to be guided into the way of peace. So how much more for us? The only thing that Jesus asks of us in this text is that we don't run from the light. That we recognize him for who he is. No one likes to have a light shone on those areas of our lives that are stinking, festering sores. We'd rather keep them in the dark and just not deal with them. Whether it's a badly broken relationship, an addiction to drugs or alcohol, an addiction to shopping or pornography, whether it's greed or bitterness, hatred or lust, Jesus asks us not to get up and not to flee to the shadows again, but rather to turn to him, to recognize him for who he really is, and to allow the sunrise to do its proper work of illumination. And once we are bathed in that light, the light of his mercy, the text says, then Zechariah says that the only thing left is to allow him to guide our feet into the way of peace. The way of peace is a description of salvation, and it's a common theme in Luke. What's meant by it is the Old Testament understanding of shalom, a person's total well-being as a result of being in harmony with God. And it's here that I want to return to a couple of verses that I skipped over, verses 74 and 75 that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This is true peace. Peace is not rest in heaven. Peace is not material prosperity or some form of inner tranquility that you can conjure up. To experience peace is to serve God 
in holiness and righteousness all the days of our lives. And true freedom, therefore, is freedom to serve God without fear, without fear of being condemned, without fear of being told you're inadequate, without fear of death. And if that's not a different vision of peace and freedom from what's being touted out there this season, then I don't know what is.